Well, friends, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, this morning we'll be looking together at the first 11 verses in this chapter as we keep moving through the final teaching opportunity that Jesus had with his followers before he went to die for them. A set of chapters in John where Jesus, verse by verse, is just unfolding a clearer and clearer portrait of who he is and of what it looks like to follow him. And nowhere is it made more clear than in the verses we'll look at today where, where Jesus uses a powerful, unmistakable, beautiful metaphor to teach us about himself and about how we grow as Christians. In this text, one of the most famous pictures Jesus has given to us, he describes himself as the vine and his people as the branches that draw their life from him so they can bear fruit. Uh, I don't know if you guys know this or not, today's the beginning of the NFL season, 2022-2023 NFL season. Many of you will know I am a big football fan, an irrational love for this sport that changes nothing, basically accomplishes nothing, but for some reason has a huge effect on my emotional stability. Uh, you have given me feedback over the years that I use football illustrations too often, that it's a little cliche, a little obvious. So I try to restrict myself to no more than four, sometimes five football-related illustrations in the 35, 36-ish times that I preach. You're going to get one this morning because this is the first day of the NFL season. There is a correlation between a roster spot on an NFL team and, a, and world-class football talent. There's always a correlation between having a spot on the Titans, for example, no matter how bad they may be this year, and they may be bad this year, no matter how bad they may be, there is a correlation between a spot on that Titans team, drawing a paycheck from that squad, and world-class football talent. Strength, for example, speed, agility, intelligence, at least about how the game works. You know, teams hold tryouts for people who maybe didn't get drafted to have a chance to earn their spot on the roster. But in those tryouts, they're not looking for heart. They're not looking for love for the game of football. They're looking for four, three, 40 times and 500-pound bench presses. They're looking for talent, and they only choose the best. There's a similar correlation between being a Christian and growing in holiness. Between being a Christian and reflecting the beautiful character of Jesus, his love, his compassion, his conviction about what's true, his hatred for sin. The Bible teaches there is a correlation between being a Christian and looking more and more like Jesus over time. But there's a huge difference between the talent on an NFL roster and the spiritual growth that's happening in a local church that's made up of Christians. There is a huge difference. To get on the Titans, you've got to show what you can do. Then they'll give you a chance to go out there and show what you can do on the, on the playing field. You show them what you can do first, that gets you on the team. Then they put you out there so you can show the world what you can do to keep that spot, to keep those checks coming. To grow as a Christian, well, you've got to come desperate you got to come empty-handed. you got to come with nothing to offer, just grabbing hold of Jesus, and then Jesus will show you what he can do in your life through you. The Titans are a team full of football talent because they only pick the best, or at least the best that they can afford. 
A, a church is full of holiness because the power of Christ always bears fruit in his people, period. I, the reason I'm going on about this now is partly because our text is focused on this theme, but also because it's so easy to assume the opposite. It's so easy to assume that Christianity works like this, that there's this correlation between being a Christian and, and growing in holiness because, because Christianity is a lot like the Titans, a lot like an NFL team. You only get a spot here when you can show that you deserve it. That's how religion often works around our world. You have to have something to offer, which means you've got something to prove. But true Christianity is not like that at all. It works just in the opposite direction. You come with nothing. God gives you everything. And in our text this morning, Jesus makes that point, which he's made over and over already throughout John, in a new way, with a new and clear metaphor that has so much to teach us about what it means to depend on him and to grow through him. In these first two verses, Jesus sets up a metaphor at the heart of the whole section where he is the vine, his father is vine dresser, and his people are branches on the vine. And that metaphor is meant to show us what it looks like to bear fruit as a Christian. Everything is aimed at fruit bearing as a Christian. What I want to do this morning is, is first read for you the entire text. And then I want to walk you through what this metaphor teaches us about fruit in the life of a Christian. I want you to stand with me now, if you would, in honor of God's word. While I pick up reading in John 15 verse 1 and read through verse 11. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone doesn't abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Three, three, three things to show you from John 15 about fruit in the life of a Christian the first is this, the certainty of fruit. First thing to see about fruit in the life of a Christian, this metaphor about how we grow, is the certainty of fruit. Precisely because...
this metaphor here is so powerful. We have to be really careful with it. We have to handle it with care. Any metaphor that you've come to, if you're trying to understand what somebody's getting at, and they're using a, a, a comparison like this, a metaphor to try to teach you whatever their point may be, you've got to be sure that you're taking the right point out of their metaphor, the, the point that the writer is actually trying to get across and not push it too far beyond what they had in mind. If you're not careful with it, if you try to milk it for more than it's worth, you'll get the wrong point and head in the wrong direction. You ever heard somebody described as a ray of sunshine? You heard that, right? Oh, she's just a little ray of sunshine. Well, normally, if you, if, you, if you take that seriously and, and you're being charitable and, and paying attention to context, you know what they mean by that. You know it means that that person's super happy. They're pleasant to be around. They're warm, energetic, lively. But if you wanted to, you could, you could work out that metaphor in a totally different direction, couldn't you? I mean, rays of sunshine are powerful. You got to be careful how much time you spend around sunshine. And boy, you better not expose yourself. You better stay guarded because he's a ray of sunshine. You open up too much, you're going to get burned. And anyone who gets too close is absolutely incinerated. Don't go there. That's not what somebody means when they say ray of sunshine. But if you push the metaphor too far, it, it could be the point you take. The point is that the reason I'm going on up and on like this is that I, there are some things about this metaphor that Jesus is putting in front of us that we need to get real clear so that we don't take the wrong point from it. What did Jesus want to get across? I, I, I want to try to show you that first by saying what he did not mean to communicate in this metaphor and then what he did mean to communicate. What he doesn't mean, the reason I'm belaboring this is that I think on a first read through these, through these verses, it could seem like he's making a point that, that he's not trying to make that could be really, really scary if he, if he were. I mean, in verses 2 and 6, he refers to branches that do not bear fruit being collected and destroyed. In verse 2, he even describes these branches as branches that are in me. Uh, and understandably, that has raised big concerns for people. Is it possible for me to be a Christian, then dry up and wither, and then be, be thrown out? How can I trust any promise that God has made in his word if me staying in those promises and benefiting from them depends on me continuing to show over and over by my own strength that I'm worthy of those promises? How can I take any comfort in knowing what could be mine someday if I don't know that it will be mine? This is not what Jesus is teaching in this metaphor, and we know it for a couple of reasons. One, guys, is that he just makes the opposite point over and over. I mean, even in John, he makes the opposite point about those who are his. In John chapter 6, Jesus says that, that the fa everyone the Father gives to him will come to him. And the one the, who, who comes to him, he says, I will, I will never cast out. Bank on it, he says in John 6. Then in John 10, he's talking about himself as the good shepherd. He says that, that he knows his sheep and that his sheep hear his voice and his sheep always follow him. And then he says, I give them eternal life and they'll never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father, he says, who has given them to me is greater than all, 
and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus gives bankable promises to everyone who is truly in him. And he's not trying to, to walk that back through this metaphor of the vine and the branches. His love is not on again, off again. His love isn't fickle. And his power to hold us is infinitely greater than our power to hold on to him. That's crystal clear, both from what Jesus has said in John and from what you'll find all over the New Testament. So what does he mean? What is this about? The rest of the verses in this section make it really clear, I believe, what his main focus is. It's not, he's not drawing our attention, especially here at the beginning, to the possibility of being a Christian who then gets cut off, but to the certainty of bearing fruit if you are a Christian. Let me say that again, because this is the connection I want you to make. He's not talking about the possibility of being cut off if you were truly a Christian. But he is talking about the certainty of bearing fruit if you are truly a Christian. The whole purpose of a vine is to bear fruit. It's not there to look pretty. It's there for the grapes. And Christ is saying, I am a fruit-bearing vine. If you're a Christian, that means you're going to bear fruit. It's not if, but when. There's a correlation here. Every time between being in him and bearing fruit. That's the gist of verse 5. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is who bears much fruit. Not usually. Not when it's going well. Not when my design is actually playing out in reality. No, no. He bears much fruit. Full stop. If he's in me. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Where there's mud, there's water. Where there's ice, it's cold. And where Jesus is, there's fruit. I think what he's really getting to here in setting this metaphor up is a point that we've seen him make already just in this brief series so far. That, that there is no connection to Jesus that leaves you as you were. A couple weeks back, I, used, I, used, uh, I said something like... Uh, Talking about my own house, it, it's, it's one thing to know what year your house was built in. It's another thing to know that you got mold up under there. One of those, both of those are kind of knowledge. One of them changes things. One of them requires action. One of them affects you deeply, and one doesn't. Knowing God through Jesus, knowing Jesus is more like knowing you got mold under your house than knowing what, house, what year your house was built in. It changes you. So, friend, is your connection to Jesus make any difference to your life? What kind of knowledge of him do you have? If you're truly connected to this vine, if you do know him, it will affect your life. And no matter what you're facing today, no matter how big it may be, how consuming of your attention, there is nothing more important for you to focus on today then this question, who is Jesus to you? There is no such thing as a fruitless Christian. There are branches that bear fruit and those that don't. Branches that are cultivated so they bear more fruit and branches that are cut off. And kids, I know you guys are learning a lot about Jesus in Sunday school classes these days. Aren't you glad Sunday school is back? I am so glad it's back. I've been missing it, and, and here we are back up and, uh, back up and running. Uh, but I'll tell you this, uh, whatever your teachers are teaching you about Jesus week after week after week, it's different 
than what you may be learning about George Washington or Martin Luther King at school. You can appreciate those guys, appreciate what they did, even try to learn from them and be like them in one way or another. You can certainly use what you learn about those guys to get yourself a better grade on your history test. But with Jesus, what we want for you, what we want for you is to really know him. Not just know about him, but actually know him. You know, Jesus is alive. George Washington isn't, but Jesus is. He died, but he came back to life. And you can know him now, today. It's different than knowing other friends. We understand that. We know you can't see him and you can't actually hear him talking to you. But it's, he's alive and he wants to know you. And you can know him in a real friendship that we would love to tell you about. You know, there is nothing we want more for you in this world than to know Jesus. Why don't you ask your parents or your teachers how you can know him? To know Jesus is to be changed by Jesus. It's another way of saying fruit is certain. If you're in him, you're fruit bearing. Now that sets up the second thing you need to know about fruit from this metaphor. The second thing Jesus wants to teach us, and, and really one of the, the driving purposes of using this metaphor in the first place, and that's the source of fruit. He wants you to know where fruit comes from. There's a good reason there's always fruit around Jesus. But it's different from the reason there's so much talent on the Titans roster. There's so much talent on the Titans roster because the Titans only sign talented players. Again, there's no open invitation onto that team. There's no guarantee that if you're on the team, you'll start running a 4-3-40 or benching 500 pounds. There's no guarantee that with a couple of lessons of the right quarterback coach, you'll be heaving 60-yard bombs by this time next week. No, they can't guarantee you that. They're only interested in you if you can already do all of that. If Jesus were a typical king, he'd only want the best people around him too. Filling out his entourage, you know, the funniest people. Keep them around just to keep things light. The best fighters, you know, the, the ones who had the best swords and the best gear. If, if, you were, if you were a typical king and you were Jesus, you'd pick the best. And if that were the kind of vine Jesus is, well, this is a bring your own fruit type situation. You want to be grafted in here? How big are those clusters? Can you measure up to what these people over here are producing? Do you see how many times in a row they made quota? What have you got to offer this vine? If Jesus were a normal sort of king, if Christianity were a normal sort of religion, that's the kind of exchange you'd expect. But Jesus is using this metaphor here to make exactly the opposite point about his community, about who he is, and about what it looks like to follow him in his community. You're not in Christ because you bear a lot of fruit. You bear a fruit, and it's certain that you will because you're in Christ. Friends, there is absolutely a warning to us that's built into what he's saying here about fruitlessness. He means for us to be sobered by the notion of a branch being cut off, a dry and withered branch being burned up. But it is not his driving focus in this text. This text is meant to encourage his people. It's almost like he knew they might get scared by what he just said in the first couple of verses. Look at what he says in verse 3. All right, guys, you're already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. I'm not worried about you being cut off. 
Think about it. Think about who he's talking to here. These guys had reason to be afraid by a metaphor like this one. They weren't the brightest and the best. I mean, Peter, he had just told them, not even two chapters ago, he just told Peter that at the moment of truth, Peter was going to deny him. That's who Peter is. Now, Peter's hearing about this cut-off branch. He's got to be thinking, well, he, he thinks I'm going I'm to betray him. Uh, and now he's talking about branches that get cut off. That guy's got to be at the front of the line, right? He's like priority one for the vine dresser to, to, to cut off. Wouldn't he be? Is he talking about me here? And Philip is there too. And he's just scolded Philip. He's like, Philip, you're asking these questions about me. I mean, I've spent three years teaching you who I am, and still you don't know me, Philip. Philip's got to be thinking, man, I mean, I know my faith is weak. I can't always understand what he's saying. He goes on and on. I get like every third word, but he just corrected me like again. Am I the one? And as if Jesus, this compassionate, gracious, and loving leader, knows exactly what they're thinking, he says, yeah, I'm not talking about you. You're already clean because of the word I spoke to you. He wants to encourage them. And that thrust gets clearer and clearer still in the next two verses. He says, abide in me and I in you. And then he says, as the branch can't bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I know who I'm buying here. When I pay for you on the cross, I know what I'm getting. You can't do anything without me. I've got you covered. And then verse 5 finishes off the theme. I'm the vine. You are the branches. I know my role. You know yours. It's the vine's role to give the life. It's the branch's role to bear the fruit. Apart from me, he says, verse 5, you can do nothing. You see what Jesus is doing over and over again here? He wants them to know he's going to produce fruit in them. He's not coming to them with a quota to meet, you know, like a bureaucrat with a clipboard and a bunch of boxes to check. You know, he's not looking at that cluster and saying, you know, you're 10 grapes shy of last week's cluster. What are you going to do to make up the difference next week? Check. He's saying that he knows they can't do this by themselves. He doesn't expect them to. Instead, he wants, them to, give, he wants to give them what they, he knows they can't come up with. Because it's his role as the vine to supply the life. It's his role to put in the energy. It's his role to, to bear fruit in them. And if you're not connected to him, you won't bear fruit. And if you're not bearing fruit, you're not connected to him. But the flip side of that is, if you're connected to him, you absolutely will bear fruit. He's not giving us a warning first and foremost here, but comfort. He's telling us it is good to be in Christ. And if you want to bear fruit, you have to be. If you want to grow as a Christian, you have to be. And friends, that leads us to the third and final thing I want to say, and what we want to spend a lot of our time on this morning, about fruit from John 15. The third aspect of this metaphor we have to look into is the cultivation of fruit. We've seen the certainty of it. If you're wherever Jesus is, there's fruit. We've seen the source of it. The reason there's so much fruit around Jesus is that Jesus supplies the fruit. It's his power that bears the fruit in his branches. That said, the branch has a role in this too. 
there is a cultivation of fruit that's important for Christians to know about and to lean into. And that's what he, that, that's what he drives home in the rest of this text. Of course it matters that we start with Jesus and what he provides. We have to see him not as a buyer picking out the best fruit and putting it on display, but as a vine who gives life to a branch. But we also have to see what our responsibility is in this. Jesus is making it clear to us that there is a balanced partnership. The roles are not the same. And it's his power that matters most, but each part has a role. Verse 4, he says, abide in me. That's a command. Followed by the assurance that he abides in us. Verse 5, same thing. Whoever abides in me and I in him. There's a command built into that. To abide in him. That's something he means for us to follow. That's, that's our role. It, it's similar in a way to if you try to grow strawberry plants in your backyard. You know, you can plant them and you can, and, and you can, you can, you can cultivate them. But you know at first at least that the, the, the most important things about whether or not that plant grows and gets healthy and then bears fruit are, are things that are completely out of your hands. You didn't make the seed. You didn't give it properties that, that bear strawberries instead of green beans or tomatoes. You didn't create the soil that you have to plant it in. You don't give it the nutrients that it needs to grow. You didn't create the atmosphere that's suited to its growing. You didn't create the sun that's going to give it life or the rain that will feed the ground. But there are still some things you can do to cultivate that growth that's beyond you, that, 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 that's more than you can pull off. You have a role as a grower. You know the soil is important, so you plant it in the good stuff. Can't make the soil, but you know it's there. You put the seed there. You know water is important, so you make sure it has enough, even if there's not enough rain to cover it. You know it needs sunlight, so you put it in just the right spot so that it gets the amount that it needs, but not enough to, to burn it up. You know bunnies like to eat them, so you put some wire over it to protect them from those predators, those nasty bunnies. You cultivate it, even though you can't source it. And I think that's the kind of responsibility Jesus has given his people for the growth that he produces in them. He's the source of it all. All of it depends on his power. We cannot do this on our own. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But his people are meant to know that about him and about fruit. And then to depend on him instead of themselves for fruit. And then to, to lean in to what he has told them about how he produces fruit in them. So what I want to do for the rest of our time is show you three things from this text that I think Jesus is using to point us to our role in fruit bearing, in the fruit he produces in his people. Three ways that we can cultivate the fruit that he sources in our lives. Way number one is our role to ask for his help. It's our role to ask for his help. That's verse 7. After he's told us that we have to abide in him, he tells us immediately not, 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 not to do something for him, but to ask him to do something for us. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. It's amazing. Fruit is not how you prove yourself. Fruit is how he proves himself. Fruit is not a sign of your strength. 
Fruit is a sign of his strength. He's basically repeating what he said back in chapter 14, one of these outlandish and bold and unqualified offers to do what you ask him to do. But look at where it comes. Look at the context in this passage. It's right in the heart of a passage about bearing fruit as a Christian. What he wants you to ask him for, what he's promising he'll give you, is what you need to honor him in your life. You want to bear fruit? You're going to have to abide in him. And what does that look like? It looks like asking him to help you. It's so simple, it's almost too obvious. But friends, whether we, whether we actually use this tool, whether we actually ask him for his help to grow, is a crucial sign of whether we really believe we need the help in the first place and whether we really expect him to work when we ask him to. I love the way John Piper put this. He says there's a direct correlation between not knowing Jesus well and not asking much from him. A failure in our prayer life, he says, is generally a failure to know Jesus. You see what he means? When you know who you have in this vine, when you know how much power he has to offer you, When you know that he loves you and wants to help you, you ask him for help. Cause and effect. If you're not asking him for help, do you really know that he's powerful? Or know that fruit honors him? Or know that he's willing to help you? The reverse of this is also true. The more we know of Jesus, the more we truly know him, not just know about him, but know him, the more we'll expect him to help us and, and, and the more we'll long to take our requests straight to him. Abiding in him looks like us just praying all the time, not just in the morning when we first wake up or just before the meal when we're saying thank you or just at night when we're praying that he'll keep us as we sleep, but just through the day. Everything will be reminding us of him. Basically what I mean to say is that every time we notice just how needy we are, just how little we have in the tank, just how big what we're facing is compared to what we have to face it with, we will pray for him, to him for his help over and over and over. Friends, I wonder, when you're fighting sin, let's just take this one example, and somebody tells you that they'll pray for you about it, does that feel to you a little bit dismissive? Like maybe they're, they're shutting down the conversation and trying to move on rather than really wanting to help you. If fruit in your battle against sin depends on asking Jesus for his help, then that friend praying for you is precisely what you need most. You ask them for that. Expect that they'll follow through. Thank them. Somebody, if, if you think Jesus wants to help you and your friend says, I will pray for you about that, and your response will be, oh, would you please? Oh, I'm so glad to hear you say that. I was hoping you would be willing to pray for me about that. Would you please? Can we, actually, can we just do that right now? Can we stop and pray right now? I need help. Jesus can help me. Would you pray that he will? How about this? When somebody shares with you a struggle that they are in the middle of, 
and you say you'll pray for them? Do you? Do you pray for them? Is it sometimes kind of a way to change the subject? What you say when you aren't really sure what else you will say? Or do you really see it as among the best possible ways to serve your friend? I mean, one way to tell is if you pray with them right there on the spot. That can be a great way to show and to celebrate together. We think he's there. We think he cares. We think he's listening. We think he can help. Let's pray right now and see what he does. If you want to abide in Jesus, in this vine that is the key to your fruit and your life, it first of all looks like asking for his help. I mean really doing it. There's a second thing Jesus shows us. A second correlation between abiding with him and this fruit bearing that we're looking for. It it looks something like reflecting on his love. Not just asking for his help, but reflecting on his love. The second thing he tells us to do, the second command in this text, filling out the, the bigger command to abide in him, is to essentially remember what he's done for us. In verse 9, look there with me. Jesus reminds them again of his love. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. That's serious love. The Father's love for the Son, that's an eternal love. That's a love that's at the heart of anything and everything that exists. It's just always there, always has been. That's a serious, steadfast, pure, self-giving, unshakable love. And he's already shown this love for us in coming here. In a few hours from this time, he will show that love again in his death for his friends. This is a love that holds back nothing A love that overcomes and even works through pain and suffering. It's a love you can depend on, in other words. That's how he's loved his own. That's what he's reminding them of in verse 9. Now look at the command. Abide in my love. Do you see that? He's stating a fact. As the Father loved me, with that kind of unshakable love, I love you. That's the fact. Now the command, abide in it. Notice the pattern back in verses 4 and 5. We're to abide in him, and he abides in us. Abide in me, he says, and I in you. Verse 5, whoever abides in me and I in him. That's the pattern. And now in verse 9, he's helping us see what it actually means in practice. Here he swaps out abiding in him for abiding in his love. What does it mean to abide in me? Well, abide in my love. It's Jesus' responsibility to love us and our responsibility to abide in it like a steak that's soaking up a big bowl of marinade. It's for us to think on it, to savor it, to learn to see things through it. It's for us to be intentional and planning to and disciplined to reflect on this love. What, in practice, what does that mean? Well, it's not rocket science, guys. Reading the Bible is a, is a major way that we abide in his love is basically a love story. The whole thing is meant to point to Jesus. Even the laws that you struggle to get through, they're all there to lay a foundation for what his love looks like. When we read the Bible, we abide in his love. I mean, verse 7, Jesus basically says that. He, he swaps out there. He does the same kind of thing that he does in these other verses, but there he mentions abide, his words abiding in us. His word in us is part of how he is in us. And his words are words about his love. 
The Bible tells us about his love in creating us when he didn't have to. It tells us about his love in providing for us, working all things together for our good. It tells us about his love in bearing with his people when over and over and over again they neglected and forgot about him. It shows us his love in forgiving sinners like us and paying the price of that forgiveness and sending his spirit to make a relationship with us possible and fruitful and unimaginably deeper than it could have been apart from his spirit. Guys, we don't read the Bible because we know we're supposed to. We read it because it's a love letter from God to us and reading is how we abide in it. You know, it's the same purpose for which we gather here. Week after week after week when we gather and sit and, and stand and sing and talk. This is just how we abide in his love for us. That's how we obey John 15, 9. A church is basically just a support group of Christians who's promised that for as long as they're here and for as long as they live, they will remind one another over and over and over and over about God's love. Jesus really loves us listening to y'all singing a little bit earlier that was me abiding in the love of Jesus I heard you sing to me that even though none of my efforts are going to stand and I don't have a legacy that's going to survive but his kingdom is coming for sure and I have a place in it because he's gracious like that all glory be to Christ and when, you know what I'm doing right now I'll stand up here and talk about John 15 to all of you wonderful people. I'm helping you abide in his love. That's what you're doing right now by listening. You're obeying the command of John 15, 9 to abide in his love. And you know what, guys? Lord willing, if Jesus doesn't come back first, we'll be right here, same time, same place, next week. And you know what we'll be doing? All the same things we're doing today because we're, we're told to abide in his love. And this is how we do it. We won't let other commitments get in the way because Jesus told us, abide in my love. And in the meantime, between now and next Sunday, our friendships, you know what their purpose is ultimately, if you boil it down, to help each other abide in his love. It's just to echo back and forth this word of love. Rinse and repeat till Jesus comes back. Last week, we celebrated communion in this room. You know the purpose of communion? Do this in remembrance of me until he comes again. Over and over and over. Communion helps us to abide in his love. Now, I know what you might be thinking, because I've thought like this plenty of times. If you're feeling stuck as a Christian, lifeless, spiritually dry, and frustrated with your own lack of interest in Jesus and what he offers, frustrated with your lack of growth or your lack of progress, you're hearing what I'm talking about. And you're probably thinking, man, I was really hoping for something a little more insightful, you know, like something outside the box. I was hoping Matt would have found his way to some new book this week and had something to serve up out of it. And he just told me to pray. And he said to read the Bible. And he said to come to church. And then he said to do it again the next day and the next week. And he said to keep going. And you might be thinking, I've tried that. And it's not working. Give me something that will help me. Uh, the best analogy I've seen for, for this reality in the Christian life, that sometimes it doesn't feel like it's working, but we're told to do the same things over and over and over and over. One pastor described it as uh, using a sailing analogy that having never sailed, I can't confirm for its veracity or truth to life, but that works really well to make the point I want to make right now. He said in sailing, uh, you know, you're out there on the water, and every now and then you hit what they call the doldrums. 
you know, a spot or a, or a period without wind. You're just sitting there. You're dead in the water. You're making no progress at all. And what are you going to do in that situation? You can't generate wind. You know that. You don't have the power to make this boat go. And you're out in the ocean. So rowing is just not going to get it done. Not, not on a sailboat anyway. So what do you do? When you find yourself in the doldrums and you know the only power source is one you can't control, what you do is you put your sails up and you wait. You know you depend on the wind and you can't create it. So you don't try to do what the wind can do. You, don't, you know your role. But you do your role. You put your sails up and you wait for the wind. So all this talk about abiding, about Bible reading and prayer and church and communion. Guys, these are just the sails that the Lord has given us to catch the wind that only he can send. Our role is to put them up, to do what he's told us to do, to abide and wait for him to work. And he will. He will. Last thing, and I'll leave you with this. The last thing Jesus puts in front of us here, underneath this big umbrella of abiding in him, what does it look like to abide in him? He's taken us straight to prayer. Ask me for help. I'll be there for you. And then he's taken us to abiding in his love, reflecting on it, looking into the record of it that, we, that he's left us. Finally, keep his commandments. Keep his commandments. Verse 10 takes us to this final aspect of abiding in Christ. It's not exactly a direct command to us like the first two, but it, it's certainly an implied command. And as, uh, when you first read this verse, it can be another kind of shock to the system, kind of sound like he's saying, I'll love you if you obey me. Look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. It sounds like he might be saying, I'll love you if you obey me. Disobey me, you're out of my love. But, but that's not it. That's not what he's saying. It's not keep obeying me, I'll keep loving you. It's keep obeying me and you will abide in my love. That's different. His love for his people, it's kind of like a habitat. It's like this, this atmosphere that he, that he places around us in which we live, an atmosphere of protection and flourishing. And I think what he's saying in verse 10 is that his commands to us are part of that atmosphere. They're part of how we flourish. They're part of how we benefit from his love for us because his commands come from his love. His commands come from the same place that his death for us has come. His desire to do us good. And obedience to his commands are just how we open up this gift. Did you notice in verse, uh, the very last verse that we read, Jesus, Jesus is not leading out here with, with an or else, obey me, keep my commands, or else, but with the payoff. Look at verse 11. These things I've spoken to you, I've given you my commands. Why? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I want good for you. That's why I've told you what to do. Through obeying my commands, you can taste what I taste. I obey all my Father's commands, he said, and my life is jam-packed with joy. Jesus was a serious person. He lived with a heavy burden on his shoulders, but that man was joyful, and you can see it come out of the pages of the Gospels. His joy came partly because he trusted his father. He did everything his father said to do. And he lived in this world of flourishing and protection that God's commands had given to him. 
Now our obedience to him are part of how he shares his joy with us. And our obedience is how we accept his joy as our own. Uh, A few months back for Lindsay's birthday, Walter remembered that she wanted a very specific kind of plant called a ficus elasticus, otherwise known to all you people who don't know anything about plants, as a rubber plant. So I went to this great little shop that she likes from the neighborhood and picked one out. What's awesome about this little shop is not just their selection of wonderfully healthy plants, but their interest in helping you keep your plants healthy if you choose to buy them. They are super helpful. And not in a judgy way either, you know, like, are you sure you're up for this? Otherwise, I'll just keep the plant. No, it's not like that. They're rooting for you. So we bought this plant, and it came with a handwritten list of instructions about how to care for this plant, keep it happy at home. It's supposed to spritz it, not water it, because that's what it likes. You, you can't put it anywhere near a vent. It doesn't like to be blown upon. And it, it went on from there, almost like this thing was a sentient being. It, one thing that was super clear to us in that shop, this shop owner loves that plant. And these rules, they come from love. The shop owner wants that plant healthy and happy. And if you want that too, you'll follow these instructions. Over to you. That's what Jesus' commands are to us. He wants our joy to be full. His is. And it's tied to his obedience to his Father. He wants our joy to be full. And for us to bear fruit, for us to abide in Jesus, we will have to work, to plan, to build our life for obedience to him. Not because we're afraid that he'll cut us off if we don't, but because we trust we will bear fruit when we do. Because we know this lawgiver loves us. He's paid such a great cost to have us. So of course I'm going to work to obey him. Of course I want to live inside the boundaries he's given me because he's given them to me. He loves me. And I want what he wants now. Father, we pray to you that you will give us the faith to, to accept what comes to us from your hand, including your rules because we trust you and the Son through whom you have spoken to us so clearly. We thank you for Jesus, who at work in us bears fruit, even in branches like us. And we pray for the the, the faith that we need to lean into his work. In Jesus' name, amen.